0: This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, former Representative Mia Love, Republican from Utah, discusses her book, Qualified. She reflects on her journey to Congress and why she believes more women and minorities should run for office. She's interviewed by Axios senior politics reporter Eugene Scott.
1: Pleasure to be with you uh, today and to discuss a really important book from a guest, Uh, that many of you all may be quite familiar with and others may uh, be engaging for the first time uh, today, Uh, I want to introduce uh, Congresswoman Mia Love.
0: Hello, how are you?
1: I'm doing very well, how are you? How are things in Utah right now?
0: It's snowing, it's still (laughs) snowing. We got the big snowstorm and it is, it just started again this morning.
1: Awesome, well I hope you are staying warm and dry. Uh, And thanks for taking time out of your day to speak with us.
0: Thank you. Pleasure.
1: Now, we want to uh, start uh, with this this awesome book, Qualify, uh, by Mila, finding your voice, leading with character, and empowering others. Uh, How did you decide uh, that now was the time to write this book?
0: Well, I just felt like now, especially because I'm not a member of Congress any longer, I just felt this sense of being just unshackled on I, I didn't I could say whatever I want to, and um, I didn't have to worry about a reelection that I could let people know who I am and why we need now more than ever members of Congress that are going to lead with character.
1: What is it in this book uh, that you think is most important that you perhaps would not have been able to articulate the way you would have liked while you were in Congress?
0: I think what it's mo- what's most important is my humble beginnings. The fact that my parents um, couldn't shop for us at you know the the really cool stores that all of my other friends in school were shopping at um, that. A lot of my clothes, they were secondhand clothes. They were also, um, although it's cool now to be able to go to Salvation Army and shop. That's what my kids are doing. But um, they were clothes that I got from Walmart. My parents got from Walmart. I mean, they did what they could to make sure that ends meet. And those are the things that people get embarrassed about or think that they're not qualified because they didn't grow up with a silver spoon in their mouths to lead. But those are the people that should be leading.
1: Now, Congresswoman, I remember that being a part of your narrative when you made history as the first uh, black Republican woman to go to Congress. Is there another part of your story that you feel like uh, was not highlighted as much as it should have been at that time that you now feel like this book is able to address?
0: Well, I think it's able to address the reason why I am so uh, pro-immigration, good, thoughtful immigration policy, because I am an example of that. I am an example of good immigration policies where my parents were able to come and contribute to society and ended up having their daughter be the first Black Republican woman ever elected to Congress. It's, it's the American dream.
1: Your American dream is, is quite a unique one. I mean, it's fair to say that most people are don't often hear about Haitian immigrants going to Utah and raising a daughter who becomes a lawmaker. So can you talk to us a bit about the details of your immigrant story?
0: Well, my parents immigrated from Haiti in the seventies and I talk about this in the book because it's so incredibly heart-wrenching when I think about it. And I think about this as a mother, how my mom and dad had to leave their two children behind for over five years. I was born in New York. My brother and my sister were still in Haiti. Um, My brother, I talk about the experience after my, my dad went first to the United States. And I talk about how my brother cried and cried and screamed at my mom and said, daddy got on the big white bird and never came back, meaning the plane, and never came back, please don't go. And she had to pry his little hands away from hers and get on the plane while watching him scream, not knowing when she was gonna be back to see him.
1: Now, assuming uh, many of our viewers are just less informed about Haiti and its politics and its history, what was it about 1970s Haiti that led your parents to say, we need to go to the states.
0: Well, it was actually early earlier on than that, and again, this is addressed in the book where my dad was fourteen, and um, he was being chased along with some other people by the Tonto Makut. Those were the thugs that were that were that did the bidding of the dictator at the time. That was Duvalier at the time. They no law applied to them; they could do whatever they wanted to, and they wouldn't. They wouldn't be questioned for it. And so if a young man got in the hands of a tontamakut that was having a bad day or that wasn't doing that, felt like he wanted to do whatever, there was no chance for them. There was no justice for them. And so my dad hid in a sewage pipe for a long time until daylight. And he went to his mom and his mom thought he had died. His mom just thought that he didn't come home at night, that he was dead somewhere. And so my dad decided at that early age that he was not going to raise children because he did not want to feel the same way his mother felt. He saw the look on his mother's face and he said, I'm not going to raise children in in this kind of situation. And he decided at that age that he was going to, at some point when he had a family, raise his children in the beautiful country he'd only heard about. The United States of America.
1: And, and he, in fact, did do that. Um, when you think about your, fa- your parents, your father in particular, his story, what he went through to come to the States to provide a better life for you and your siblings, how does that shape your views on immigration when looking at current individuals trying to come to the States uh, to flee comparably as chaotic situations?
0: Yeah, well, I think about immigrants. I think about my parents. I think about how my dad said the greatest day of his life was when he pledged the allegiance to the American flag, and he knew exactly what he was saying, and he meant every word of it. He said he studied the Constitution and studied American history and feels very strongly even today that his love for America is stronger than so many Americans, people that were born in this country. And I said, dad, what makes you say that? And he said, because I know what it's like to live outside of this country. I know what it's like, I don't
1: take it for granted. And how did that patriotism shape you as a child? Were you a kid who knew uh, you know, before middle school that you wanted to be a lawmaker or is there some... Never. <laughs> okay. But I this imagine... This not
0: something I said I wanted to do when I grow up. Okay. You know, this was... Um, politics was never one of those things that I wanted to get involved in. But it did shape my love and my patriotism for America. I... Because I knew of these stories. I sat at my father's foot as he told me these stories of growing up uh, it he was actually he had they had his family had a farm and he had to walk um, with donkeys up the mountain to try and gain work, the farm, get food, come down. It was a treacherous um, walk. It was really hard it, to make to live in, in Haiti. It was really it was just a struggle every day. But he told me about what a dictatorship was like. He told me. About the differences and why America's so great and uh, why it's important for people to continue to have power, not government have power. I grew up with all of those stories and I appreciated this country and I knew that no matter what, I would at some point do what I can to not be a burden to society, to give back. Any chance I had, I was going to give back. And that started early on in my adult life, being on the city council in Saratoga Springs and eventually becoming mayor.
1: So obviously you had the privilege of not growing up uh, under a dictator. But when you reflect on your childhood, uh, what is what are some of the things you remember loving most about this country? Uh, Separately, perhaps from what your father loved most about America?
0: Well, I love the fact that I mean it there it's very hard as a child to grow up and know and, and live here and know that um, you just take you just you just take what America gives for granted. But one of the things I love the most growing up is that my parents told me and even my teachers, it was up to me. I could be whoever I wanted to be. I could do Whatever I wanted to do, Uh, as long as I worked hard for it, I could be a doctor, I could be a teacher. I knew that that privilege was available to me here.
1: And while you were certain that you didn't want to be a lawmaker, what are some of the the goals you remember uh, pursuing and, and striving for as a young child?
0: Oh, gosh. I mean, I was uh, involved in choir. I was involved in all of the musicals. I knew that I wanted to get... All I knew at that time is I wanted to get good grades so I can have options. Because at that, when I was really young, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I never said that I didn't want to become uh, a, a, a congressman. I just said that that wasn't what I wanted to do. I, it's not what I said I wanted to do when I grew up. I knew that I wanted to... I mean, in my mind, I was going to... Um I was going to perform on Broadway musicals because I I did performing arts in college I was just I just loved the the world of musicals and entertaining and making people feel good.
1: Well, one one might say that uh, lawmaking is is entertaining uh in some ways that are quite different from what you were striving <laughs> for as a young person. Uh, but you did find your way to the halls of Congress and, and had a memorable impact uh, in terms of history making and also in terms of helping people rethink what an American looks like. What, what do you think of when you think about the impact you had uh, in Congress retrospectively?
0: Well, I think, first of all, there are several facets of this. First of all, I've always said, yes, the first black Republican woman ever elected to Congress. I certainly hope I'm not the last. But one of the frustrating things that I found is it was really difficult to get, it, especially people in, in my party, to get, to allow me to lead in areas like immigration, like women's issues, that, that I was passionate about and that the, the messenger counts. When you're sending out a message, people that you're trying to speak to need to feel like you relate to them, you understand them. And that's one of the things that I continue to tell even Kevin McCarthy today and all of the and and the GOP leaders today is the messenger counts. And we have to put forward people who are who can deliver that message so it resonates to the ones that we want to speak to. I mean it's just I that that impact, I hope I'm not the last. The impact also is that you don't have to be an attorney graduated from Harvard. It's and I try to try to really emphasize this in this book that your experiences, especially the humble ones, your your um, the things that framed your life, and as long as you are leading by the content of your character, as long as you are leading by who you are and what you believe in, those that's what really matters. That's what really, that's what leaders should do. And that's who
1: leaders are there's been long it's concern. Not comfortable. Uh, I'm sorry I interrupted you. You were talking about it not being comfortable. It's not comfortable. It's not
0: comfortable all the time. I mean you've got so many people that are expecting you to say things a certain way, do things a certain way. But when you lead by character, you know right from wrong. You stand up for the things that are right and you, and you call out the things that are wrong. And, you, and it's at the end of the, that's what we need. I joined the Congressional Black Caucus. I was the only Republican in the Congressional Black Caucus because I had a motto. I said, leaders put themselves in uncomfortable positions or situations and get comfortable there. It was uncomfortable for me to be the only Republican there. And I got really comfortable there because I made friends and I found people that I love dearly to this day that I call my brother or sisters because we found things that we can work on together.
1: You talk about that experience a bit in the chapter uh, in your book, uh, titled Good Trouble. I'm paraphrasing it, uh, but I remember that phrase being in the chapter title uh, because it's a nod to an iconic uh, saying from the late Representative John Lewis, who I know you had the privilege to serve with. Can you talk a bit more about uh, your time as the only Republican in the CBC and why you may think it's important and valuable for current Republicans, black Republicans in Congress, to attempt to join this really influential caucus.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and and it's just not like I said, a lot of people said, don't do it, Mia. It's not going to be they're not going to like you. It's not going to be comfortable. Your policies do not align. You know, just stick with the conference. Well, I I was in the conference, the GOP conference. But then I decided that maybe I would just take a chance and join. And I met up with Marsha Marsha Fudge who ended up becoming, like, she was my chosen big sister there. I had Paul Ryan, who was my mentor, and big brother, who I would go to for advice and help. But I also had Marsha Fudge, which made me so much more well-rounded. But there's a great example that came from that, where Cedric Richmond, on the way to the State of the Union, um, we talked, he said, you know, we, we see so much, we see so many things in the same way. Why are you a Republican? I said, because of the stories that my dad would tell me about why it's important that people have power and that we don't centralize power and dictators and people who are able to have too much power uh, in the highest levels of government is so bad for the United, for people. And I also said that um, being a mayor, a city council, I found that the most efficient the most effective solutions are found at the most local level. I was able to address issues very quickly. And the closer you get decision-making to people, the better it is. And Cedric told me, he's like, I understand that. He's like, I think differently because the local level is what kept my family, ancestors from having the ability to vote from having, they were the ones that chased us down in the streets, that didn't give us the the rights. And we had to go to the federal government to finally make sure that the states allowed us to vote without fear of harm or being jailed. And I got him. We got each other because we saw the perspectives from, from each other's point of view. And it made it so that we looked out for each other and we found ways to work together and things that we could
1: agree on. It's such an important point. Different Americans have different experiences with small government in terms of making their lives better or worse. Uh, And that certainly uh, shapes their politics and the policies that they support. Uh, What is it in the current GOP? You've been out of Congress for a few years now that you find yourself aligning with most? And what do you find yourself disagreeing with most?
0: Well, I, well, the principles, again, the principles of free markets is really important. Those are the things that my dad was able to come to the United States with $10 in his pocket. He found work And the harder he worked, the more he progressed in his work, the more money he was able to make. It was those it was the mom and pop shops, the small businessmen that were able to hire my dad. He had three jobs to make ends meet. One was him being a janitor, cleaning toilets in order to pay for books for me for college. We need to be able to continue to have the opportunities to give people as many opportunities so they can be as ordinary or as extraordinary as they as they choose to be. But we cannot burden them with high taxes. I am still pro lower taxes. We have to be able to allow families to take care of each other. We have to be able to um, depend on each other and have this idea that we have an obligation to care for those who cannot care for themselves instead of looking to government to do it for them. I still believe that we have to find a way, along with lower taxes, to lower gas prices, to lower inflation. It's hurting Americans to give people as much access as possible and to let them be the masters of their own success instead of making people dependent on a federal
1: government to do everything
0: and everything for them.
1: And on issues you uh, disagree with, I mean, one could argue that the GOP that exists today is, is quite different in some areas from the one uh, you uh, were a part of, at least on the Hill.
0: I think the, you know, that's really that's a little that's a little more difficult. I certainly weren't wasn't prepared to. I could have thought about it a little bit more. Um, I've I've disagreed in the past, obviously, with some of the statements that the former president made. Some of the issues that um, that he brought up, I disagree with. I do not believe if, if there's any disagreement, it would be this. Our job as leaders is not to attack people. We should attack problems and not care who takes credit for it. We should never make it our policy or make it a point to attack individuals. We're Americans, we're in the same boat. And what we all need to realize is that there are countries out there that do not want us to succeed, that want us to fail. There are entities out there that just, do not want in America to exist. And we need to work together to keep that at bay. Foreign policy is a big issue and we need we're, we're we're in we need to watch out what's happening with with Russia, with China. We are if we take our eyes off of the off of the conflicts there, we're going to find ourselves unpre- unprepared for the problems that are coming at us.
1: You obviously write about finding your voice and, and you still sound very passionate about quite a few ideas. Can you talk a bit about how you've been able to find your voice after leaving Congress? What does finding your voice look like for you now at this stage in your life?
0: Finding I, I my voice meant accepting all of the things that made me who I am. Accepting and acknowledging. I talk about so many stories that I would I was embarrassed about. I would have never stood on the floor and talked about um, some of the things that I experienced as a child. And there's nothing to be embarrassed about because it made me who I am. It made me who I am. My mom's being embarrassed about my mom's really thick, heavy accent um, trying to fit in. You know, being a leader is not trying, it's not about trying to fit in. It's about letting people be who they are and letting them live out their American dream, their version of the American dream, not mine, but theirs. It's about knowing that sometimes, and I say this, and, I, and I've said this over and over again, failure is fertilizer for the future. My parents taught me that. Everything that you learn from the mistakes of today and yesterday will benefit you in the future. But you have to learn from them. The only failure is not learning and growing
1: from from that from that failure. When you think back on your time in Washington, uh, what what would you say was your greatest failure as a lawmaker?
0: I would say my greatest failure is not speaking up enough or more. Speaking up enough or more. I always felt like I needed to wait my turn, wait till I'm called upon, wait till I'm... That would be my biggest failure. I could have spoken up and out more. And what would you have said? Well, there's a lot to say. It depends on the moment, right? It depends on the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I I should have done, I think, more TV than I did so I could get my message out, not what I was told or when I was told to get it out, right? I feel as if I should have done more that way what I would have said, I would have spoken out more about immigration. I would have spoken out more about some of the great things that I was working out. And I always thought to myself, I shouldn't, I mean, I shouldn't boast about, about the things that I've done. I always looked down upon that and I should have spoken up. I was, I authored a bill called the stop act, stop, taxpayers obligation to perpetrators of sexual harassment there was a fund out there that if a member of congress was accused of a sexual harassment or there they would be able to make it go away by being able to settle with with taxpayers dollars with the accuser and make the issue go away i authored that bill and i passed that bill and it's no longer they can no longer use taxpayer dollars to do that and i think it's helpful to have due diligence if you are innocent then make make your voice heard protest that innocence and have your due diligence go out and defend yourself
1: Speaking of the bill you just mentioned, as as I'm sure you pay quite a bit of attention to, uh, there have been quite a few Me Too moments on Capitol Hill uh, since you left Congress. Why do you think that this issue uh, became as prominent uh, of a topic as it did when it did, considering how long it existed?
0: Well, I was actually in Congress when a lot of that was coming out. Okay. So many um, I just, I just, it comes from two things. One, people maybe getting a little too comfortable, maybe getting a little too, uh, a little too confident. Need a little bit of humility, and women not speaking up enough and saying, you know what, this is uncomfortable. And it's really interesting because I've actually had moments where I've actually said, this is not me. This is uncomfortable. I'm not the one to mess with. Turn around and walk away. I've actually, and you have, and it's, it's, but I was not subordinate to anyone. Right. And when you're in that position and you realize that there's somebody that can affect your job or can affect your work, it's hard to do. So I was in a different position. It's harder, it's harder to do when it's somebody that affects your work, but I've all I've said this and I will continue to say this. We need to start having uncomfortable conversations with our girls, with our boys. We need to make sure that they know what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. Right. I have a young son that I have conversations with mm-hmm. even now he's 15. And I tell him, I, I I talk to him all the time so that he's very clear before he ever gets himself in a situation that might make someone else uncomfortable or compromise, compromise himself. I have two girls I have conversations with all the time.
1: You're writing the book quite a bit uh, about being a parent and I, w- I would love to hear how uh, you know, as you have gone about raising kids over these past uh, few years, how that has shaped your political worldview and your positions on policies and your outlook on uh, how this country should function.
0: Completely, it has completely. Because everything I did in Washington was to make sure that my children had a better, had a better country, an improved country to be raised in, preserve the things that made this country great, and improve upon the things that can that can improve this country. I I mean we my kids know more about policy. As a matter of fact, my daughter is a fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. She writes policy research, not from a political standpoint, not from a Republican, a left or a right standpoint, she just uses data to talk about why immigration is good for the U.S. economy, why it's good for us as a country and as a people. And it's, I mean, I just, I love the fact that she's doing that and that my being involved has made my kids realize that they have to be involved they have to stand up. They have to make their voice heard or someone else inferior to them is gonna do it for them.
1: But no, uh, no political ambitions have been vocalized yet there with your for kids? My kids? Yeah.
0: They also saw the bad. They also yeah. saw the ugly. They also saw that you yeah. can't even, I had to turn off social media several times just because people can be so cruel. They can, they can be. And, and another thing that this book does is it talks about who I am authentically instead of letting somebody else tell people who I am. There's a lot of that that goes on when you're a member of Congress. Oh, she's this. Oh, she's this. She's not really black. She's or else she wouldn't be GOP or she wouldn't be saying these things. I mean, all of that, I get to tell my story, I get to talk about who I am because there were so many lies that were put out there during campaigns. There were so many different things. And I said, I get to tell who I am. And I hope that what this book does more than anything else is anyone who reads it sees a way that they can be involved, that they can actually lead. That all not to listen to the noise of the people that are telling you you're not experienced enough, you're not good enough, you don't have the right type of pedigree, that they could, they could lead, and that the thing that qualifies them is their character.
1: What, what is the biggest misperception about you that you feel like you were able to clear up in this book?
0: There's this idea that because I'm a Black female, that I should have, I should be a Democrat, or I should be this, or I should be that. And um, I never, and I, and I hope people understand this, don't allow anyone to ever put you in a box. I went to Chicago once, um, I was speaking to a group, the University of Chicago, speaking to a group of aspiring attorneys. And again, I was told, Nia, don't go. These people are Obama people, and they will hate you. And they will boo you out of there. I mean, you going to universities. Um, it was just, they were like, it's not a good time for you to go. Don't do it. And I remember I told my story. I spoke about who I am and what I believe in. And one young lady stood up and she said, I don't understand how you could be on the wrong side of the fence. You could be a black female, how you could be a Republican living in Utah, being a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, Mormon, or LDS. How could you be all these things? And I said, I am all these things because I refuse to fit a mold that society tells me to fit into a mold, that they say, this is where you belong. This is what you should think. This is how you should think. And I said, if Martin Luther King didn't stand up to government and say that we are not second-class citizens, you would not be here today. He didn't fit this mold that that government wanted to fit him into. He didn't fit this mold. He said, I am much more than that. I said, don't take my policies. I don't want you to take my policies and believe my policies and run with it. What I want you is to preserve your right to think for yourself and to have your own thoughts for you yourself and your family. That's what I want. You are here Because you're a human being that deserves to be here and you're working for your right to be an attorney and to be whoever you want to be, to be as extraordinary or as ordinary as you choose to be.
1: Your point about not fitting uh, in a box uh, because of your gender or your ethnicity, it's one that is frequently made. Uh, by former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. And, and we hear also from uh, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina also making that case quite a bit. And, and I think we'll hear that point uh, just resurface on these campaign trails next year um, as the GOP seeks to figure out who is going to nominate, who they're going to nominate heading into 2024. Do you feel like uh, since you left Congress... That your party is more welcoming uh, to more people of color, to more women, to more individuals who are less likely to be uh, defined in a traditional way uh, when we start thinking of Republicans? I think
0: whole, as a whole, that's what, our, that's what our principles would suggest. I think as a whole, yes, I think there are certain individuals that um, do not represent the best of what we believe in. I mean, you do look at people like Nikki Haley and like Tim Scott. Um, you look at, gosh, I served with Will Hurd and Carlos Corbello. Um, we used to have this joke. As a matter of fact, when there were people in the gallery and we were on the floor and we were talking together, I would say, "We need to disperse. We can't be held, We can't sit in a clump and talk together. We need to. We need to look at least from there more diverse." We need to disperse, and um, I have always encouraged um, and, and want I want us to to make sure that we're being as open and and diverse as possible, because the policies that I believe in, that I subscribe to as a member of the GOP, are good for everyone, are good for minority families are good for, you name it. That's why, again, I am so, I'm such an advocate of immigration policies because if we're not setting up good immigration policies, we can either set those policies up or things can happen to us as we see on the borders today. We see the horrible things that happen on the borders, people being left under bridges. Um, I I was heartbroken when I saw how, the Haitian people were being treated as they were trying to get get their piece of the American Dream. It was horrible. We need to have some policies. It's in our constitution. Uniform rule of naturalization, Article 1, Section 8. That means that we have to have a uniform rule of a way in. Those things, I mean, you, you watch that. I mean, those are the, I was incredibly passionate about those things because they, they it's who I am.
1: And you're still incredibly passionate about it, obviously. And I would love to hear your thoughts on the, the main thing you believe uh, the Biden administration is getting wrong when it comes to immigration right now.
0: They're not addressing immigration policy at all. They had the House. They had the this- Senate and the White House. That was a perfect time to see what they could put forward, what they could put forth. And nothing was done. Nothing was done. We are our children are being killed by fentanyl every day that's coming in across the border. I I just, there is I was on financial services and over terrorism and illicit financing, I was also over human and sex trafficking um, in the United States and how that was happening. I mean, we have a responsibility to make sure that that is not happening at our borders, But, but it is. People are doing some horrible things and bringing children in to being trafficked for, for the purpose of trafficking. It's, it's just unacceptable.
1: You are obviously passionate about children. You speak about uh, the youth quite a bit. What type of advice uh, would you give to other new lawmakers who are trying to balance being a representative and raising kids in this country at the same time?
0: Just remember what you're doing it for and who you're doing it for. I did, I, I, every policy, I thought about my children all the time and what country they were going to be left with. And that includes another thing that I agree with, with the GOP, is that we need to do something about our out of control debt and spending. There's no way. I mean, you can't even get your arms around it, but you have to start. You have to start. Even if it means that we have a balanced budget in twenty years, we have to start. We cannot leave our children with this with this type of burden. What would I tell our children? You asked me a question, I got off track. What would I what would I say to the youth
1: or to newcomers? Yeah, to to new you know, there are quite a few Moms and dads of young children who have just started uh, in Congress this, this session. And you know what it's like to have young children and to be in Washington for quite a bit of time. And, and I would I love to hear yeah. what you would, would tell them. How, how do you balance that?
0: I would say don't shy away from going home. Mm-hmm. Go home. Mm-hmm. Come back. Remember who you're fighting for and what you're doing it for. I mean, being a member of Congress, I still, thank goodness for modern technology, but I would FaceTime my children. My daughter would say, Mom, do you know where my swim gear ears is, is? Do you know where this is? Do you know where that is? I would still have conversations with my kids. As a matter of fact, every night at 10 o'clock Eastern Time, I knew it was 8 o'clock and my kids were getting ready for bed. I would have a conversation with them and I would be stuck right here. They couldn't go anywhere. They would have to be right here with me having a conversation about the day to just remember who you're fighting for. Keep in touch with what's going on at home so that you can represent people better.
1: Now that you're in the district uh, more, what are you seeing uh, that's going on at home on the ground with with Americans, with. Uh, voters, with students that you feel like people in Washington might be missing?
0: Frustration with Washington. Frustration with Washington. People's lives aren't getting any better. My kids are watching adults on TV be absolutely horrible to each other. Things that aren't getting done. Also, there are, there are so many people. I mean, the Biden administration, and I'm with him on this. I wish he would do something. But the Biden administration talked about the noble cause of eradicating cancer, of um, just doing everything that they, but, but I've seen no movement. They also promised doing something on immigration, and I've seen nothing. Just fr- I'm frustrated, just like people are frustrated, because... They're like, where are all these promises? Instead of the promises being kept, we're seeing still gas prices are still high, inflation. Not, I mean the what we're getting in terms of what we're getting in paychecks not matching what the the, the rise of inflation. People are still they're having more hard time making ends meet, putting food on the table taking care
1: of their family. And what would you encourage your neighbors to do with those frustrations? We know that apathy is a real issue among so many Americans. And while others, you know, are are motivated to become more engaged, uh, somehow civically or through nonprofit work or entering politics themselves, how would you encourage someone uh, to move forward despite their frustration?
0: I would say, first of all, read my book, (laughs) because they, they would get a heads up of what to expect. I mean, I talk about imposter syndrome. I talk about all the people and all the noise coming at you, making you doubt yourself, doubt your qualifications. I would say, first of all, read the book. Second, figure out what you are passionate about and then go and lead on that.
1: I would love to hear how you overcame your own imposter syndrome and, and where you feel like those origins came from.
0: I think that there are, I think it's something that women experience a lot of. Um, so I I, I just, I, I'm not really sure where it comes for, from, but it, I think it's just history. Not women not being in, Positions of leadership, all of those, I mean, you start to, you start to doubt whether you can, if they couldn't, well, could I, now we need to have women that, women that actually are in leadership, that are CEOs, so that instead of, if they couldn't, could I, our youth are saying, they could, so, so can I, they could, they did it, I can do it too.
1: And what is it that you think you can do now uh, that maybe you didn't think you could do before you got to Congress? What are you focused on now, goal-wise?
0: Well, I'm, I'm still focused on. I mean, it's it's. I'm still able to speak on policy, have a different opinion. I'm I'm a political commentator on CNN. I'm able to get on and have an authentic opinion, a diverse opinion, so that people can make an informed decision. I'm still working to give people access to information and encouraging Americans to be involved, to stand up and get involved in what's happening in our country.
1: And are you finding that to be something uh, that's easier now that you're outside of Congress or are there new challenges you find yourself facing?
0: I'm not. The challenge is, I mean, there's still, again, um, I think that there are, the, it's actually a little easier. It's a little easier because I have now asked my opinion. I don't necessarily have to solve them. As a member of Congress, you have to offer a solution. And I mean, even though I still offer a solution, it's just not going to be a scrutinized as it was when I was a member of Congress. So I can still, it's a little easier that way.
1: As someone who covers lawmaking, one of the things I'm very aware of uh, that make offering solutions quite difficult is that this this is a huge country. It's incredibly diverse, lots of issues, lots of people impacted differently by these issues. Uh, And finding solutions that work for all of them isn't an easy task. Uh, As someone who was tasked with finding solutions, what did you find to be the most difficult part about that process?
0: It's what I found is that there, there are some solutions. The problem is that there are some issues that are used as wedge issues by the political side of, of both sides of the party, right? So you've got the NRCC, you've got the DCCC. Those, it's about winning and less about solving the problems.
1: And how can people pivot in Congress from focusing on winning? Uh, to actually finding solutions uh, to people's problems? Like, what did you find to be most effective when you were centering solutions and the people impacted by them?
0: I, again, I didn't care who took credit for it. If I had an idea, there are times where I would go to, I partner with a person, with a member on the other side of the aisle. I did that with Kirsten Sinema financial services quite a bit. I mean, our states are pretty close, land issues were very similar. We had things that we could work on. And then I, st- I started uh, again, working with my friends. Emmanuel Cleaver, we call him Rev, came to Utah and we did a poverty workshop together. We, taught, we went to talk to as many different entities as possible, and we, we talked about the difference between generational poverty and situational poverty, and the answer for one is not the answer for the other. Sometimes you need different types of solutions, because if you try to, tr- if you try to solve situational poverty with the solution for generational poverty, it just creates a bigger problem. But having discussions and talking and finding, sometimes it's not just one solution. Sometimes it's a melange of solutions. Sometimes it's a, it's a collaboration.
1: Bipartisanship seems very difficult and, and uh, you know, increasingly rare right now when you look at Capitol Hill. Do you have any ideas of how lawmakers can cut through that?
0: OK, say it again. I'm sorry. I you,
1: you were you were sharing your experiences working with people from the other side of the aisle, which is not something that happens uh, as as much as I think a lot of Americans would like when they look at our current uh, Congress. And I was wondering if you had any suggestions for how uh, lawmakers could make some gains in that area.
0: They just have to let go of their ego and also let go of what they think may be good or bad for them in an election and join. I mean, joining the Congressional Black Caucus wasn't a political, wasn't a political move. It wasn't something that I could go back to my district and say, yes, I've joined this or I did this, but I did it. And I was able to get some great things done. So it just means, and I'm going to say it again, this is the whole idea. Don't lead by policy. Don't lead by who is in front of you. Don't lead by who's in the White House. Don't lead by what you're, what the House leadership or the Senate leadership says. Lead by character. Lead by character. And you'll get things done for people. Lead by what's right and wrong versus what's left and right.
1: And lastly, uh, you mentioned getting things done. I would love to hear if you're hoping to get things done again on Capitol Hill or a return to a political office in some other capacity.
0: Well, I am not going to say no. If the opportunity arises and I can make a difference, it's my obligation. And I would say that for everyone else also, it would be my obligation to do it. And I'll be ready when the time comes, when that tap on the shoulder comes as Winston Churchill says, will you be ready?
1: Well, what could be
0: the finest hour, I will be ready.
1: Well, until then, uh, Congresswoman, uh, we uh, thank you for taking time to talk with us today and to share your thoughts and your experiences and views and values on, on character, on leadership, on the qualifications that made you who you are and uh, are carrying you as you move forward. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Appreciate it. Hope
1: you enjoyed the book. Indeed. Thanks for listening
0: to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.